0: All my children have gone through this stage, the stage where they incessantly ask the why question. They ask about something and they ask why and you answer and they follow it up with another why question, followed up by another why question, followed by another why question. When the questions are beyond my capacity or patience to answer, whichever comes first, I'll usually say something like, that's just the way God made it, or that's just the way it is, right? So we can move on. We we understand as parents uh, how our kids, uh, driven by their curiosity to understand things, ask the question, why? Well, in our text this morning, as we continue our study through the book of Galatians, we're going to see that. As Paul defends and articulates the gospel of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, he anticipates a why question. He anticipates the hearers and even his opponents asking a why question. So he deals with a question, a why question, here in our passage. So keep that in mind. Look with me in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 15. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. i want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15, the Bible says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Look at verse 19. Here's the, the why question in the title of the sermon. Why then the law? Why then the law? Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we are grateful, Lord, for yet another opportunity to gather as a faith family to express our love and adoration, our awe, Lord, for you. Lord, to come into your presence and to hear you speak to us through your word. We are grateful for this time. And we pray, Lord, that as we study the Bible, that you would move in our midst by your Spirit, that our eyes might be opened, that we might see the truth of Scripture and have the inclination to respond to what you teach us. Lord, have your way in our midst. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to exalt him. Help us to rejoice in Christ and his finished work. And Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon to give us a, a deeper hunger and appreciation for your word. So have your way in our midst, by your grace and always and only for your glory. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Galatians is in actuality a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches scattered throughout the first century Roman province of Galatia. And he's addressing false teaching that had infiltrated these churches. Paul had gone through the area of Galatia, preached the gospel. People had believed in Christ, had been saved. Churches had been started. But after Paul left, false teachers came into those churches and said, basically, we've heard that you've placed your faith in Christ. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Congratulations. But if you really want to make sure you're right with God, if you really want to have God's acceptance and favor, you also need to adhere to the law of God. You need to be circumcised and keep other elements of the law. So in effect, they were adding on to the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Their gospel was you're saved by Jesus plus doing some things. Paul was saying, no, 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 that's a false gospel. The, The true gospel is you're saved By Jesus Christ alone. And as this argument unfolds, we saw last week that Paul contrasts blessing and cursing. And here's the the argument that Paul made in our text last week. He basically said, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then you receive the blessing of salvation. If you're trusting Christ to save you, you've experienced the great blessing of forgiveness and transformation and eternal life and hope and joy, fulfillment. You've experienced those blessings in Christ. But if you're trusting in your adherence to the law, if you're trusting in your moral effort, you're not blessed, you're living under a curse. You know why? Because you can't keep the law perfectly. And when you disobey, you are under a curse. But he says, you don't have to live under a curse because Jesus came to take our curse for us on the cross. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. So if you will embrace him, he will forgive you and save you. But he makes the case you're either living under the blessing of salvation or the curse of God that your disobedience deserves. Now, as Paul makes these strong statements... He anticipates a why question, and and he spends some time answering that anticipated why question in the next passage of Scripture. He knew his strong statements would raise some questions and even some objections from his hearers. Remember that in these churches in Galatia, there were Gentiles and there were also Jews who were believers in Christ, and there were also false teachers that he was coming against with Truth to combat their false teaching. And so there are three headings in this passage that help us to understand one of the big why questions that the hearers would have had. The first heading in this passage is this. Paul acknowledges the predicament of the hearers. Paul acknowledges the predicament of the hearers. Look in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul talks about blessing and cursing. Then he gives a human example. He's going to illustrate because he knew that the hearers were probably having a hard time grasping this idea. You see, Paul understood that many of the hearers uh, took Paul's teaching as pitting Abraham against Moses. Notice that both are mentioned in this passage. Look in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And look what it says in verse 19. It says, Why then the law? It was added because of a transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That intermediary was Moses. Remember, Moses, representing Israel, went up onto the mountain called Sinai. He received the law of God. God wrote his law, the Ten Commandments, on the two tablets of stone. And then Moses came down and delivered the law to the people of Israel. Now, when, when uh, the hearers heard Paul discussing salvation by faith alone and blessing because you try to keep the law and can't do it, they would have a question. Are, are you saying, Paul, that Abraham and Moses are opposed to each other? Both Jewish heroes? Or are they enemies I mean, in their mindset, in their hearing, they were thinking Paul was saying, in this corner, we have Abraham, the great patriarch, the father of the Jewish people, the the father of faith. But over in the other corner, we have Moses, the one who led uh, Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery, the one who went up on Mount Sinai, the one who faithfully led the people of Israel. Are you saying, Paul, that that, that Abraham and Moses are enemies? Are you putting them against one another? You see, in the Jewish mindset, Abraham was a big deal, but so was Moses. I mean, Abraham was the one that God uh, began uh, the lineage that led to the formation of the Jewish people. God, God began with Abraham. That's a big deal. The father of the Jewish people. But Moses was a big deal too, right? I mean, he was the one that God set aside to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt into or toward the promised land. He led them through the wilderness wanderings because they could not go into the promised land because of their disobedience. But Moses was a big deal. And so they're saying, what about Moses? I mean, all this focus on Abraham and faith. What about Moses and his part in and among the Jewish uh, people? The covenant with Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish nation that's big but so was the exodus and the giving of the law at Sinai in fact look what paul writes in verse 19 why then the law it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made it was put in place through angels by an intermediary now the intermediary is moses he went up on the mount sinai But what does it mean when it says this law that God gave Israel was put in place through angels? Most scholars believe this is a reference to Deuteronomy 33 verse 2. The Bible says in that verse, He, God, came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at His right hand. When the Lord came on to Mount Sinai in in the, the, the glory cloud, and when He came on top of that mountain to meet with Moses, it says He came from... Ten thousands of holy ones, 10,000 angels with flaming fire in his right hand. What an awesome reality that was. That Moses met with the, the God who came from angels who was holding flaming fire in his hand. That's a big deal, right? And so the Jews are thinking, is that not a big deal? That God gave the law with holy ones, tens of thousands and flaming fire and the mountain was quaking. That's a big deal too. And so... Moses is anticipating they're having a struggle, or I mean, Paul's anticipating they're having a struggle with just putting Moses on the shelf to focus only on Abraham. Perhaps there are even some in the churches in Galatia that say, Hey, Paul, do we need to remind you that the first five books of the Bible are called the law? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the law? So surely the law is a big deal too, right? That's what Paul is dealing with. And Paul wanted the hearers to understand that while having different purposes, listen, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law were complementary. They go together. They weren't enemies. Abraham and Moses weren't enemies. They are on the same page. They they are complementary. Different purposes, but both used by God. So the passage begins with Paul acknowledging the predicament of the hearers. The second heading of this passage is this we see that Paul highlights the promise of God. He wants them to understand what this promise of God that God gave Abraham entails. Now, in verses 15 through 29, the word promise is mentioned eight times. It's mentioned in verse 16, verse 17, verse 18, again in verse 18, verse 19, verse 21, verse 22, verse 29. If you see the same word repeated eight times in a passage like this, You might want to pay attention. There's an emphasis here. And and, and Paul is emphasizing the promise of God, the promise that God made to Abraham. Now he's dealing with Genesis 12 and the subsequent chapters. If you remember, God intersected Abraham's life. and He said, Abraham, you and your wife are beyond childbearing years, and yet I'm going to give you a son. I promise I'm going to give you a son. Not only that. I'm going to give your son sons, and then they'll have some sons, and and there'll be many descendants, and I will form your descendants into a great nation. I'm going to make a brand new nation out of your descendants, Abraham. That would go to your head, wouldn't it? But he promised, "I'm I'm going to make your descendants a great people. Not only that, he said, I'm going to give this new nation a special land, a promised land in which to dwell. They'll live in this land, they'll serve me, and they'll make me known to all the other surrounding nations. Not only that, through your descendants, Abraham, I'm going to provide the potential of blessing for all the peoples on the earth. People from any any tribe, any tongue, any background, they will be able to receive the blessing of salvation Ultimately, Abraham, through your descendants, those were the promises that God made to Abraham. I want you to see several things about this, this promise, this idea of promise that Paul is referring to. The promise to Abraham, first of all, was centered upon Jesus. Look what it says there in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. Here's what he's saying. Your descendants, Abraham, will be formed into a great nation. And one day through that nation, through the Jewish people, I will send my Messiah. Messiah. I will send a Redeemer, and we know that his name is Jesus. But all of these promises to Abraham were bigger than just the Jewish nation and bigger than just the promised land. All of the promises of Abraham culminated in Jesus Christ, Coming to this earth and dying on the cross for the sins of humanity and rising from the dead. The promise of Abraham was centered upon Jesus. Look in verse 29 of Galatians 3. Paul writes, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You receive the blessing, I promise, through Abraham's descendants if you belong to Jesus. So the promise of Abraham was centered upon Jesus. You receive this promise by believing in Jesus Christ. Secondly, the promise is for all people. Notice what it says in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's point here is this. This promise of salvation is available for anyone and everyone without distinction, regardless of your ethnicity, the language that you speak, your gender, your status in life, your socioeconomic level. Jesus died for your sins. So if anyone from any background places their faith in Christ... They can receive the blessing that God promised through Abraham's descendants. They can receive salvation. It's potential salvation for anyone. This must have been glorious news for the Galatian Christians. For in their society, slaves were considered to be only pieces of property. Women were kept confined and disrespected. And Gentiles were constantly sneered at by the Jews. The Pharisee would pray each morning. Listen to this. I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew, not a Gentile, a man and not a woman, and a free man and not a slave. Can you imagine praying that prayer? And here's what Paul's saying. God chose Abraham to build a nation through whom he was in a Messiah who would die on the cross to provide salvation for anyone, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, Salvation is available for all. Available for all, and listen to me. That's good news for everyone in this room, because it doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, what gender you are, what your socioeconomic status is. This promise of salvation that started way back with Abraham is available to you. That good news. For everyone. That, that's why it's a message we can proclaim to the world. It's available to everyone. And, and let me tell you another thing about this promise. This promise makes available all of the spiritual blessings of God. Look in verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you're an heir, that means you receive an inheritance. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you get An inheritance from God your Father. The idea of inheritance throughout the New Testament speaks of all of the spiritual blessings that God gives us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, everything God has for you is yours. He's withholding nothing. So what is, what is the inheritance? I mean, what do we get when we believe in Jesus? Well, I, I could speak for months on this, but let me just give you a few. Forgiveness. Everybody, anybody in here think forgiveness is a good thing? Forgiveness is wonderful, isn't it? I need it. You need it. Adoption. In Christ, you can call God Father. We're going to talk more about that next week in Galatians 4. Reconciliation. Because of your sin, you were an enemy of God, but now you've been forgiven and reconciled to God, and you can call Him friend. Redemption. You've been set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin over your life. You're free now to serve Jesus and to rest in His finished work. Sealing of the Spirit. When you receive Christ, you get the promised spirit. This is the end of the passage we studied last week. The promised spirit by faith. The Holy Spirit of God, God himself, comes to live on the inside of you to transform you from the inside out. Hey, heaven, that's part of your inheritance, right? Jesus right now is preparing a place for us. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. King James says, many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you that I may come come again and receive you to myself. So right now Jesus is preparing our place. One day he'll come get us, take us home to heaven where we get to live forever. That's pretty cool, right? We could go on and on. Peace, fulfillment, purpose, meaning, joy. These are all part of our inheritance. We're heirs and in Christ Christ we receive all of these spiritual places, all everything I just named, it's available for you if you place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then let me tell you one more thing about the promise. The promise is received by faith. You say, wait, I want in on that. How did I get it? Look what it says in verse 22. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This promise, this inheritance, this salvation is yours by faith in Christ. Look what it says in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through what? Faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When you place your faith in Christ, you put him on like a garment. You belong to him now. And because of that you receive all of the blessings of the promise. This promise is received by faith. And so the passage begins with Paul understanding their predicament. It's not that Abraham and Moses are opposed to each other. They have different purposes, but but they're complementary. And then he wants them to understand how wonderful this promise is to Abraham about Jesus that's available for all who believe in Jesus. But there's a third heading, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. Paul, anticipating the why question, why then the law? Paul explains the purpose of the law. Paul explains the purpose of the law. Now, before he explains what the law is all about, he gives us a few kind of thoughts to understand the the relationship between the promise to Abraham and the law. First of all, the promise to Abraham came first. Look in verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So he's saying the promise to Abraham came first, then the law. And so that that means that God's promise, Abraham, is still in place. Just because the law came into existence doesn't mean that God reneges on his promise. How many of you understand that God always keeps his promises? Always. So so the existence of the law does not mean God's going to say, well, I'm going to back off of those promises to Abraham. Those promises are still in place. The promise came first. Secondly, the giving of the law did not change how people received the blessings of salvation. Look in verse 18. He says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave to Abraham by promise. So if you want to play the game that you're saved by keeping the law, you need to understand that you better be perfect. But he says that's not how the promise comes. It comes by faith, not by moral adherence to the law. And so the, the, the giving of the law did not change how people receive the blessing of salvation. Listen to me. Everyone that's ever been saved, Old Testament, New Testament, Before the cross, after the cross, everyone that's ever been saved has been saved by faith. And the giving of the law does not change that at all. That's how people receive the blessing of salvation. There's a third statement here to help us understand the relationship between the two. The law was never meant to be permanent. Look in verse 19. Verse 19. Why then the law? That's the why question that Paul's anticipating It was added because of transgressions. Now watch this next word. Until. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So the law fulfilled a purpose until Jesus. Never meant to be permanent. There's an until here. So having said all of that, that the law does not make void the promise to Abraham. Having said all that, Why then the law? Never meant to be permanent. Why did God give it to us? Why Mount Sinai? Why the thunder and lightning and tens of thousands of holy ones and and the two stone tablets? Why? Why did God put that in place? Well, Paul answers that question with an explanation and an illustration. It's very helpful. Let Let me give you the explanation first. The law... Was given, first of all, to restrain. The law was given to restrain. Now, when God gave the law to the people of Israel, there are three components to it. This might be helpful to you to understand. Uh, The first component of the law is the moral law of God, these are God's expectations for our character and our actions. And the moral law of God is summed up really by the Ten Commandments. That's the focus of what God gave the people at Sinai. The moral law of God. Now some people say, well, the law was temporary. We don't live under the law anymore. So the Ten Commandments are not for me. Well, not so fast. Not so fast because here's the deal. The Ten Commandments are repeated in different verses in the New Testament. All of them except the the regulations of the Sabbath, every other commandment is repeated in the New Testament. So the the Ten Commandments are for us today to reveal God's moral expectations for our life. Does that make sense? The moral law of God. The second aspect of the law that God gave Israel is the civil law. And these are laws that were given specifically for Israel to regulate their society. Remember, God led them out of Egypt. They wandered in the promised land for 40 years uh, outside the promised land. Then they went into the promised land, and they were a new nation. And God gave them these civil laws to help them to live uh, as a nation and to have a civil society. Now... We no longer live under the civil law that God gave Israel. That's not for us today. That's why when someone's caught in adultery, we don't stone them. We say that sin is rebellion against God and His plan, but because of Jesus and His death on the cross, there is forgiveness in Him. Right? Amen? Forgiveness. We don't stone people caught in adultery. We no longer live under civil law we don't stone disobedient children right? right? Why? we don't live under the civil law of God anymore. that was meant to regulate Israel at a particular time in their nation's history. There's a third aspect of the law it's the the sacrificial law, the sacrificial system the The blood sacrifices, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the the, the, the burnt offerings, the wave offerings, the bread, the grain offerings, uh, all of these things. The priesthood, the sacrificial system. The entire sacrificial system pointed to Jesus and his ultimate sacrifice. That's why when you came to church this morning, you didn't see any animal sacrifice here on the altar, did you? There were no bulls or goats or calves killed this morning here at Longview Point. Why? That entire sacrificial system pointed to Jesus and Jesus came and gave the ultimate sacrifice. There's no longer any need for those. What, what the, the sacrifices were pointing to, Jesus has come and done it, right? So when you came this morning, you just came with a sacrifice of praise and gratitude, not with an animal in your hand. We no longer live under that sacrificial system. But thinking specifically about the moral law and the civil law, these were given to restrain the sin of the people. Now look what it says there in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. has something to do with sin. And look what it says in verse 23. Now before... before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison till the coming faith would be revealed. So there was a, a, a captivity, a, a restraining that the law was meant to provide for the nation of Israel. And we think about the moral law for us today. In other words, these laws were given to help them not run absolutely wild let me illustrate how this works let's talk about the speed limit how many of you don't raise your hands we have lots of law enforcement in this church all right don't raise your hands how many of you perfectly kept the speed limit last week or that's not a good way to say how many of you violated the speed limit last week don't raise your hand all right Now, maybe some in this room kept the speed limit all week long, but probably there were some in this room that went above posted speed limit. Right? Let's just be honest. Now, no one has ever kept the speed limits perfectly, but can you imagine if there were no posted speed limits? Can you imagine how dangerous it would be out there? Just just in Hernando and on the interstates and the highways, if there were no speed limit and people go as fast as they want to go, it would be really, really dangerous. So so people don't keep them perfectly, but there's a restraining function that speed limits have, right? They keep us under check. They slow us down so we're not endangering other people. That's what the law was about has this restraining function to, 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 to keep the people of Israel in check. And because the moral law repeated in the New Testament still for us today, it restrains us from maybe going beyond where we should go morally. So the law was given to restrain. Secondly, the law was given to reveal. Look in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned till the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was meant to be there as, as other things were revealed to us. So other things could be revealed to us. The law was given to reveal. Now, what was the law given to reveal? First of all, it was given to reveal God's character. God gave his law to show his people and to show us today how holy and righteous he is. To show us his nature and his character and his attributes. So let's take the Ten Commandments for example. The moral law of God. God God cannot lie. Therefore he says, do not bear false witness. Right? God is perfect and holy and just and righteous and glorious. Therefore, we should not take his name in vain. God is the one true God. There are no other gods. All other gods are false gods. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the one true God. Therefore, we should not worship other gods or make graven images. That's idolatry. You see, these, these ten commandments reveal God's character. God Perfectly provides for His children. Therefore, we should not covet things that don't belong to us. Right? The Ten Commandments reveal God's character. Not only that, the Ten Commandments reveal our sinful condition. Now look what it says in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Again, it has something to do with our sin. And then in verse 24, look what it says. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law reveals our sinful condition. It shows us how sinful we are. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says this. This is a surprising verse. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? The law was given to increase our trespass? The law was given to show us that we have trespassed and how serious our trespass is. That's what that verse, what's the word verse means? It's meant to reveal our sinful condition. See, the law is a stark reminder that you don't keep it. Over in Romans 7, Paul says, I know I'm a coveter on the inside, but when I saw the law, do not covet. It showed me just how much of a coveter I am because I began to disobey that law. And I was coveting. The law showed me how rebellious I am on the inside. I shared this illustration a few weeks ago. But when you walk by a sign that says wet paint do not touch, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Why? There's a rebel on the inside of you. And the law shows you you're a rebel. The law shows you there's something in you that wants to disobey against law. And the law is there to show us how sinful we are. It shows us our sinful condition, which leads to the third thing. The law was given to reveal our great need for a savior. Look what it says in verse 24. So then the law was our guardian. Some translations say our, our schoolmaster. Our, our, our tutor. law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified uh, by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. The law shows us that we have a great need for a Savior. You see, the law was meant, wasn't meant to give life. It was meant to show us we need life. Look in verse 21. Key verse here. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if the law could save, by all means keep it. But you can't keep it and it doesn't save because you're imperfect. Therefore, the law was never meant to give life. It was meant to show you that you need life. It was meant to show you your great need for a Savior. If you look at the Ten Commandments and you say, you know what? I've lied, I've coveted, I've lusted, I've hated in my heart, which is equivalent to murder, Jesus says. Lust is equivalent to adultery, Jesus says. I've taken the Lord's name in vain. I've dishonored my mom and dad. I've had idols in my life, things that were more important than the Lord. When you look at the Ten Commandments, look at your own life, you say, I fall short I need help. I need a Savior. That's the purpose of the law, to show you you need salvation. The law wasn't meant to give life. It was meant to show you that you need life. Now, to drive this home, Paul gives us a very helpful illustration. To illustrate his point, Paul contrasts the role of guardian and father. Now, look what it says in verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, under a tutor. For in Christ Jesus you are all, here it is, sons of God through faith. So he contrasts the law being our guardian and being saved by Christ and being a son of God. Now the word guardian refers to a servant of the family responsible to watch over the children in a family. It's equivalent to the idea of a nanny. And this was very uh, prevalent in the first century. Uh, Wealthy families would have people that they paid or even slaves responsible for watching over their children. They would teach their children, provide for their children, protect their children, keep watch over them, keep them from harm and danger. This was a very prevalent role in the first century. And he's saying here that the law is like a guardian. It's meant to Watch over us until we become a son of God. You see, the guardian did not have the power to change a child's heart, but they could provide direction and restraint, right? A guardian watching kids, they could say, do this, don't do that. Go here, don't go there. Stay away from that danger, stay away from that danger. They could guide, they could instruct, they could discipline, but they could not change a child's heart right they just would oversee the child's behavior that's the same with the law the law restrains the law reveals the law guides the law instructs but it cannot change your heart right just like a guardian cannot change a child's heart The guardian did not have the power, listen, to give the child their inheritance. Only the father could do that. But they could point the child to the day of their inheritance. They could say to the children, there's coming a day when your father will give you your inheritance. That would be a wonderful day. And that was the purpose of the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system to point them to the day when Jesus would come and die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave so that we can be forgiven, be reconciled to God, become his children, and receive his inheritance of every spiritual blessing. The guardian could not give the inheritance, but they could point to the inheritance. So, why the law? If we're saved by faith, that goes all the way back to Abraham. Everyone that's ever been saved has been saved by faith. Why did God give the law? To restrain and to reveal. To show us how much we need a Savior. The law is the tutor that leads us to Christ. Or let me say it like this. The law helps us to see our condition. The promise saves us from our condition. John Newton was an interesting man. He was a faithful pastor, author, hymn writer, great man of God. But John Newton understood grace. Before John Newton was a pastor, he was a degenerate participant in the slave trade. He was a wicked, vile man. By his own admission, a wicked, vile vile man, involved in a wicked, vile practice. And yet, John Newton met Jesus, and he was saved. And he never got over it. He wrote some words that are some of the most well-known words in the church today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, listen, that saved a wretch Like me. After he was saved, he became a pastor. And as an older pastor, as he was losing some of his physical and even mental faculties, he understood that his strength was diminishing. And John Newton, this older, faithful pastor, said this, I don't have the same mental capacity that I've always had, But I know this, and here's what he said. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. The law says you and I are great sinners. The promise that culminates in Christ says Jesus is a great Savior. And that's how those two, the law and the promise, work together and complement each other. So that we can see our need and then not walk, but run to Jesus and his salvation.